0: Children, fourth and kindergarten, dismissed to gospel story time. I want to reemphasize to everyone that we are still looking for volunteers to help pull that important ministry off. Uh, Contact Jennifer Matoka if you can help out with that. Everyone else, Acts chapter 1. And uh, we are going to finish Acts 1 today because 12 through 26 uh, uh, are really together as one. And uh, so we're going to pick up that whole section. Acts one twelve through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons, was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let, not, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabas, who uh, was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. Lord, every time we submit ourselves to the preaching of your word, it is a humbling act. It says we don't know it all and we need to learn. It says we don't see our blind spots and we need them to be revealed. It says we know we are not perfect and we need to be convicted. It says that we know that we don't have the ability to comfort ourselves and we need to be comforted. Lord, it is an admission that we need you. We need your word to speak To us and transform us and so we pray again this week as we pray every week that you would remember your promises that your word would have its effect lord i am only your messenger without any ability to change lives and hearts but trust that when i um, honor you jesus in preaching your spirit works in and through it to do more than uh, we could ask or imagine or change us this morning because we came to church. Most of all, Jesus, I pray, my greatest hope is that you would be pleased with the words um, that I say. That they would be honoring to you, fitting your word, true to scripture, glorifying, and good for the saints. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, your word for the day is sovereign, uh, big word, big church word. Um, count how many times I say sovereign or sovereignty, I'm going to count both, sovereign or sovereignty. Uh, count how many times I uh, use that word and then ask your parents, what does sovereign mean and, and why was it such an important part of the sermon? My scorekeeper this morning is Abby Cunningham. Hi, Abby. Please stand. Yes, you stand. I did this to Mark in the first service. I had Lisa be the the scorekeeper in the first service. And uh, she said, well, you need to do Abby in the second service. So there you go. You get the prettiest scorekeeper uh, to date. And uh, she'll hold that title for a long time. Uh, Kids, uh, go to Abby. This is my wife, by the way. I'm not. (laughs) Hi, visitors. I'm not flirting with somebody from the pulpit. That is my wife. Uh. She'd love to meet you if you haven't had a chance to meet her yet. And uh, kids, she'll have your uh, score. Uh, sovereign or sovereignty, babe. Okay. Let me, uh, let me tell you the, the sermon t- where that sermon title, God's got this, where that came from. Uh, I vividly remember a particularly overwhelming season of life uh, for me. Um, it was a season of pastoral. I mean, I, I've spoken honestly about uh, seasons that I've struggled with, uh, battled with, um, crippling anxiety. Um, but this was, this was one of those seasons of pastoral paralyzation where I felt like I was in a situation that I literally had no idea how to navigate or what to do with it. Um, really facing kind of the utter, my utter inadequacy to fix it. I'm a fixer. It's one of the things I struggle with. And when I get into a place where I feel like I can't fix this, is usually when God uh, sanctifies me the most. And during that time, I was walking through it with a bunch of friends, and I remember uh, so many well-intended conversations I had of people trying to help me during this really, really difficult season. Some tried the rational approach, helping me see logically that everything was going to be all right in the end. There were those who tried the comparison approach, helping me see that as bad as this was, it could be much worse, that kind of thing. There was the minimizing technique that we do in the grand scheme of things. This isn't that big of a deal. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Uh, There was the cheerleader technique. Come on, you can do this. I know you have what it takes as a leader. There was the religious technique. This is a result of your sin and um, the way out of this is repentance and it will kind of work itself out. A lot of different conversations, all of them well-intended from people I respect. And honestly, um, a lot of those conversations that I'm having with myself, I'm playing those same games in my mind, trying to figure out how to deal with this difficult season. And all of those strategies probably feel very similar to what you turn to when you are in a place of utter inadequacy, trying to comfort yourself. But they brought me no comfort. And so I've, I vividly remember calling a spiritual mentor of mine and just letting him in on everything going on uh, with our church and with where I was and, and, and all of this, fully explaining it to him. And it kind of turned into this session where I'm just dumping all of my pastoral uh, problems and, and difficulties on him and hoping that he's going to have kind of the nugget of wisdom to fix this all. He's going to, if anybody has it, it's this guy. I trust him that much. He'll give it to me. He'll fix it. He'll have the plan. And so I'm just going on and on and on and on. And in the middle of the conversation, he said, Robert, stop. Stop. Take a deep breath. And then he gave me, he gave me three words that was just like, oh, he said, Robert, God's got this. And I just stopped. It was one of those moments where I just froze and said, oh. God's got this. He said, God's got this. It's okay. He can handle this. He's not surprised. He's in control. Take a deep breath. God's got this. This is what we see happen in our passage this morning. A people overwhelmed by what is before them. But at the same time, confident that God's got this. And we're going to look at the passage through two lenses this morning. We're going to see them overwhelmed by inadequacy and then empowered by sovereignty. Let's look at both of those dispositions together. First, inadequacy. Last week, week, if you'll recall, was nothing short of just global vision. That's not an exaggeration. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. That is to say, I expect you to fix the world. (laughs) Now, from that grand global vision, look at the immediate contrast in verse 12. Because we separated the passage, it it takes away from the stark disparity that that, that takes place here. But look at verse 12. So, go save the world. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and then it just names the people that were there. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, um, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, son of James. All these with one accord, it says, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Again, the disparity is easy to miss, but very, very intentional in, way the, in the way Luke is telling the story. Eleven men and a few women go save the world. And even more so is this all of a sudden, all of a sudden noticeably gaping absence of Jesus himself from the story. A significant Change to the story that we dare not take for granted. Because of the Gospels, we are very accustomed to the weakness and unfaithfulness and um, inability of the disciples. That's pretty much the theme of most of the stories in the Gospels. It's basically showing how inadequate and faithless and fearful and faltering are the disciples, but how faithful and adequate and strong is Jesus. And so a a situation uh, is set up where the disciples are faced with, I can't do this, or we have faithlessness, or we fear this, and Jesus saves the day. For example, a hungry crowd of thousands And all the disciples um, have our five loaves and two fish to feed them. I say that qualifies as inadequacy. Except Jesus. Except Jesus is there. And then Jesus, per usual, takes their inadequacy, multiplies it, saves the day, feeds the crowd. That's essentially the stories of the gospel. Same inadequacy, same overwhelmingness, except with Jesus is there. They've got the eternal son of God with them and that tends to make a difference. But here there's a huge shift after the ascension. This is very different. This is inadequacy without the comforting presence of Jesus. Just imagine them. Put yourself in their shoes. Use your imagination. They're back in that upper room that same upper room that we've lived in as a congregation for a year and a half in John 13 through 17. They're back in the upper room. Imagine them staring at the empty seat where Jesus once sat. Knowing that this is when Jesus would normally say something that made sense of it all. This is when Jesus would normally do something that surprised them all. But now, they're alone with nothing but the bewilderment of his absence and this gnawing pit of anxiety in their souls, what are we going to do without Jesus? What are we going to do without Jesus? And on top of that, There is an immediate and very practical inadequacy here that's difficult to see unless um, unless you're familiar with the full grasp of the biblical story. Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples to become apostles? That's not an arbitrary act, right? And, And why is it so important to replace Judas? Why not just leave it as 11 apostles, That strange story that we're going to get to where they cast lots and replace Judas, that's actually a monumental, um, important event. Why? Because Jesus came to create the new Israel. Jesus came to be the perfect fulfillment of Israel's story. He redeems the story of Israel by perfectly succeeding, succeeding where Israel failed Miserably, And one of the most significant aspects of this mission is his 12 apostles, which are the fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation is called Israel because that was the name given to Jacob. But truly the story of Israel was entrusted to Jacob's 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel out of whom would flow the story ...of Israel, the foundation of the nation, so to speak. So likewise, Jesus gathers to himself twelve disciples... ...who will become apostles. Literally in the Greek, apostle means messenger. That is to say, they are now entrusted with the message of Jesus. So Israel with the foundation of the twelve tribes... ...the church, the new Israel with the foundation of the twelve apostles great story great imagery until Judas betrays Jesus takes his own life and now the whole plan is messed up because there's only 11 it's not exactly a good new Israel to start with 11 apostles a few women and I say that what we love about the Bible, what we love about Jesus and his ministry is how empowering he is to women, how he included women, that women are noted as being a part of this early first gathering. But you do need to know, culturally speaking, that, that would, they would read that and think uh, that's more inadequacy, not adding to the, to the solution. Eleven apostles, a few women, know Jesus, an entire world to save the epitome of inadequacy. But now here's the question for us. We understand why they in that room could feel utterly inadequate. Here's the question for us. 2,000 years later, millions of churches later, billions of Christians later, are we any less inadequate than we were as that small gathering in the upper room at the beginning of this whole thing called the church? Do not be deceived by the veneer of progress. I attended a meeting, Will and I attended a meeting this week to discuss TCPC's role in international missions. Potential, really exciting partnership stuff with international missions. And in some ways, I don't know if this is how you left the meeting, Wolf. In some ways, I left very encouraged. I mean, it's exciting stuff we got going on here. You know, we, and, 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 if it, and if it materializes, you'll hear all about it. Really exciting international mission stuff going on. But I also left that meeting feeling completely overwhelmed by the sheer massiveness of the need. We talked about a city in Africa that in what, what year? In 2022? Eternal, eternal century, yeah. Is going to have 80 million people. 88 million people in one city. We talked about like all of the needs all around the world of all of these different places. Listen, when the, when the apostles in our passage ventured out to tell the ancient world about Jesus, there were 300 million people inhabiting that world. That's less than the United States of America now. In China, where Christianity is illegal and the secular government just destroyed the largest church, the church that had 50,000 members, and last week, I believe, the government destroyed the largest church, is becoming increasingly antagonistic. There are 1.3 billion image bearers of God. (laughs) That's over four times the world of acts in one modern country where it's illegal to talk about Jesus. I mean, if you let yourself just go, if you let your mind just go there, the need becomes paralyzing, overwhelmingly paralyzing, which is precisely the point That's exactly what they're experiencing in the upper room. And that's exactly what we're experiencing in this room. Utterly inadequate by ourselves. But are we by ourselves? That small gathering in that upper room had the audacity to believe that despite how things appeared... God's got this, God's in control, God has a plan and everything's going to be fine and we need to see their confidence and see ourselves in it. So having seen their inadequacy, let's look now at them become empowered by sovereignty. Verse 15 begins a different scene And is the first of Peter's famous speeches in acts that we will be discussing, obviously, a lot. Remember remember what I already said. A big problem they are facing from the outset is the loss of Judas. How could that have happened and what are they going to do about it? Nobody saw that coming. What are they going to do about it? And what we see within Peter's explanation is confidence. That despite the circumstances, God is in complete control and to be trusted. Versus his speech about Judas is all about the sovereignty of God over it all. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Now this is in those days is a different time. This is a period between when they were in that upper room and Pentecost. Um, So just around that time. He stood up among the mothers. The company of persons was in about 120. The reason why Luke points that out is that in the day was considered a local church, a synagogue. That, that's, a, that, that's a local church. That's a church. That's where we are right now in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ, is we got one local church. And he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those arrested, who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, of, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language, a that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Now, here's, here's what I want, there's a lot. Here's what I want to ask. Why do you suppose Peter goes into such detail here about the whole Judas thing? Everything from the gory details of his death to the fact that the Psalms predicted it in precise prophecy, here's what's going on. What Peter is establishing in this sermon is God's absolute sovereignty over all of it. Notice how striking, we're just gonna take one verse. Notice how striking verse 16 is. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David Concerning Judas. Do you understand what that's saying? The Holy Spirit all the way back with David inspired the Holy Scriptures. That had to be fulfilled about Judas's evil actions. Now just just consider the implications of that. Every detail of every action of the story of Judas. Was sovereignly ordained and providentially directed. Every detail. God was not surprised by a thing. Indeed, God planned the whole thing. And I'm not reading too much into Peter's speech here. Jesus himself said that to Judas. He said, this is, has to happen. It's written that it's happened. You got to do this, but woe to you for doing it. And by the way, it's not just Judas. When we get to Acts 4, there's going to be this fascinating verse that lets us see how the apostles and early church viewed the crucifixion of Jesus. It says this, there were gathered together against your holy, is a prayer to God, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place no qualifications there clear as day everyone involved judas herod pontius pilate all the gentiles the jewish crowds did to jesus exactly what god's hand and plan predestined them to do so when judas led them to jesus that was the will of god When Pilate sentenced him, that was the will of God. When they shamed him and mocked him and dressed him with the crown of thorns, that was the will of God. When the soldier's hammer came down on the nail, it was the will of God. When he bowed his head and breathed his last under the weight of holy justice, it was the will of God. Or, as Isaiah said, it was the will of God to bruise him. Implication. That the early church, these early believers, and apostles are clinging to. If God is sovereign over the greatest tragedy, the greatest evil, the direst and most despairing moment in all of history, then what is he not sovereign over? That is to say, if God can handle this, then what can't God handle? Brothers and sisters, I beg you to believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over everything. I know it raises many questions in your mind. But don't let those questions keep you from it. I know it's tempting to feel the need to get God off the hook. But he doesn't need you to get him off the hook. He is sovereign. He is completely in control in what appears to us to be an impossibly out-of-control world. He is not overwhelmed by what overwhelms us. He is not threatened by what we find so threatening. N- uh, name your distress. Name it. Whether that be personal or global, your immediate circumstances that are overwhelming you, or like I said, 1.3 billion souls in China where the gospel is illegal. Name it, whatever it is, and throw it at his sovereignty and ask, even this? And the Bible will answer that with, that does not compare to the dire distress of the crucifixion of the Son of God. And so his sovereignty says to us, yes, even this. Or you could choose the alternative, I suppose. You could say that because I can't figure out how God's sovereignty works, because I don't have full clarity and understanding, because not all my questions have been answered to my satisfaction, then I reject the absolute sovereignty of God. Fine. But if God's not in control then your life in this world are now out of control. Unless you can somehow get it back under control and then have fun coping with that. Either ascribe to God's sovereignty or try to bear the burden of sovereignty yourself. I strongly suggest the former. Brothers and sisters, God's got this. He really does. And when we accept that, we are now ready to move forward in confidence with what is before us. And that's exactly what they do in our passage. They pray he 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 ascribes to God sovereignty even over Judas and the betrayal. And then they get going. A common objective to the sovereignty of God is that if God is absolutely sovereign over everything, then what we do doesn't matter. So why do anything? Now, I've never met a person who believes in sovereignty of God that ever says that or acts like that. But I I understand the objection logically. But in reality, the perspective is this. Because God is absolutely sovereign, then what we do absolutely matters, can and will, and is being used by God according to the perfect counsel of his sovereign will. In contrast, if God is not sovereign, and this thing is out of control, then that is what becomes paralyzing. It's so overwhelming and insurmountable that we don't even know where to begin And our pathetically meager efforts are pathetically useless because you really think that we can fix all this? So ironically, if God doesn't have this, then why even try? It's just hopeless. But if God's got this, if I don't have to bear the unbearable responsibility of sovereignty if I don't have to understand it all, if I don't have to fix it all, then I can just move forward with what is before me that God is calling me to do and let him handle everything else. Watch them do that in the upper room. Jesus has given them this grand vision to the ends of the earth that is seemingly impossible. But God's got this. Peter stands up and says, don't worry, God's got this. We can trust him. So let's just move forward in faith with step one. (laughs) And step one is that before we get going with this whole thing, we got to replace Judas. We have to have 12, there's only 11. So let's just start with that. (laughs) We've got to save the world, but first, we got to find another one. (laughs) It's incredibly practical. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now listen, here Peter is laying out the qualification of apostles. We'll talk much more about the office of apostle later. But here's what he's saying what it is. It needs to be someone who was with Jesus throughout the entirety of his ministry. From his baptism, which is the beginning of his public ministry, all the way to his ascension. And most importantly, was a first-hand witness to his resurrection. And there are two who fit that qualification. Verse 23. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barzabas, who was also called Justice in Matthias. And they prayed and said, now listen. Listen to the sovereignty here. You, Lord, have known the hearts of all who know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. You know everything. You know the hearts of everybody here. You've already made this choice from eternity past. You've already chosen this. We just need to know which one you've chosen. Again, his sovereignty. Verse 25 to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, don't get thrown off by the casting of lot thing in this passage, which always derails the passage. This was actually a very prevalent Jewish tradition that you will find actually all over the Old Testament. It happens quite a bit in the Old Testament. And it was rooted, again, in, the, in Israel's belief in God's absolute sovereignty. Proverbs 16, The lot is cast, but its very decision is from the Lord. But this is the last time lot casting is practiced in the Bible. It doesn't show up again after Pentecost because the will of the Lord henceforth is found in the community of spirit-filled believers. We we'll, we'll, we'll get to that change when we get there. I just I just wanted to like make sure we, nobody go home and start casting lots on the decisions of your life, okay? That's just all I'm doing right here. Don't start gambling with that. Okay? So, Matthias is numbered with the 11 apostles. The immediate need has been met in full trust of God's will. And now they're ready to move forward in the next step of the impossible task of the ends of the earth, knowing, however, that God's got this. So, here's my question as we apply this passage to our lives What are you going to do with your undeniable inadequacy? What are you going to do with your inadequacy? Perhaps you are feeling your inadequacy in a personal way this morning. Circumstances right now that you're facing where you just feel utterly overwhelmed with what is before you. You have no idea what to do, no idea how to fix this, completely overwhelmed with your personal inadequacy. Or perhaps you're where I have been this week, feeling overwhelmed by global realities and the seemingly insurmountable vastness of the need. Whatever it is, what are you going to do with your inadequacy? To me, you have two options. The first is very popular in our therapeutic narcissistic age, and it's this you've got this. Don't believe the negativity of your inadequacy. Take control of whatever situation you are facing. You have what it takes. Now get going. The problem with that is that it's not true. And it's so overwhelming that ironically... You never really get going in any meaningful way... Because what's the point? So you either give in to despondency of hopelessness... That actually I don't have this. That's one option. Or you distract yourself... By just not going there and not dealing with it. I find that people who have this veneer of strength and control and confidence, people that the world will look at and say, man, they're strong. They can handle things. I don't think inadequacy when I think of them. I know a lot of those people. And they are essentially people who bury their heads in the sand and don't deal with the issues because the issues reveal their inadequacy. They're just going to pretend like these things that I can't control aren't there. They'll numb themselves out with whatever... They choose. So either you give in to despondency because you don't have it, or you just pretend and don't deal with the fact that you don't have it. Here's the second option the option we see embodied in our passage God's got this. He really does. You don't, but He does. You're overwhelmed, but He's not. You don't understand, but He does. You're inadequate, but He is sovereign. So knowing that, you don't have to handle it all and fix it all. You can just move forward by faith what is before you. That's a, that, that. So when my, when my mentor said, Robert, God's got this. The next sentence was, now just be faithful tomorrow. Like You're trying to fix this whole big thing that you know you can't fix. God's got it. Be faithful tomorrow. Which sounds a lot like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all of this will be taken unto you. God can handle billions of people that don't know the gospel. Tomorrow, I'm going to pray for an unreached nation. And I'm going to evangelize to one of the billions. God can handle the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass. Tomorrow, I'm going to love my neighbor. God can handle the mess that I have made of my life. Tomorrow, I'm going to repent in the smallest of details. I can't fix the craziness that is my family. God can handle that. Tomorrow, I'm just going to repent and do the little things. I can't handle, but God can handle my child's rebellion. God can handle your child's wayward ways. Tomorrow, I'm going to send them a note, a text. I love you. Here's a verse that encourages me. God can handle my vocational unrest and uncertainty. He's sovereign over it. He can handle it. Tomorrow, I'm going to be faithful in my calling. God can handle America and culture wars and and, and the fear of the future. Tomorrow, I'm going to be salt and light in Lexington, Kentucky. Do you see what I mean? I can go on and on with these applications. It's this, God's got this. He is sovereign over it all so you can trust him with it all. He can handle the big things so you can move forward in the mundane things. He is in control with what overwhelms you. Therefore, you can move forward with what is before you. Let me pray and ask for his help. Lord, teach us, this requires such humility, teach us to trust that you have it, that we don't have to have the answers, we don't have to have the plan, we can't fix it all. It is enough to trust that you've got it and be faithful in our calling, the first step, what is before us. Or we come now to a table of your faithfulness, a, a weekly reminder that you've got this and it is enough to just be loved by you and to leave here, strengthened by you and faithful in the mundane. Do that miraculous work by your Spirit through Christ, we pray. Amen.